This morning I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If I have counted correctly, this is our fifth Sunday back, and it's a delight to see each of you. As I mentioned last Sunday morning, the the thrill and the excitement that I feel just about coming back and being with you folks has, has not uh, worn off at all, and I'm continued to, to to be thrilled at the at the good numbers. I'm encouraged by that. If you check the bulletin, you probably saw that we had almost 300 here in the uh, in the building last Sunday morning, and that was far out eclipsed by the number of logons that we had from people who are watching at home. And so if you consider each of those logons, that probably there was more than one person watching in each of those places, then uh, preacher count, it was stratospheric. I'm, I'm thinking millions. You know what I'm talking about. But uh, it, it is a thrill to see faces here. And, and folks, just, just to be able to come back and sing with you people again, it's just what a blessing that is, and I'm so grateful for it. Kind of reminds me of my maternal grandfather as I was growing up. For a while, we lived right behind his place, and uh, I would see him on a daily basis. And there would be times when something would happen in, in Grandpa's life that you know would please him. And so we would ask him about it just to hear him to say, it makes me want to grin. <laughs> and that's, and that's, the way, that's the way I feel. Just thinking about coming back and, and being with you folks makes me want to smile. Um, since considering the present distress, as Paul said in the First Corinthian letter, we have not uh, really addressed our theme for this year. There's been uh, for, since the last time we were here in on March the fifteenth. That's been about six months ago, and so today we're going to rectify that at least in part by considering uh, this theme once again and, and talk about how we need to have twenty twenty vision. There have been a lot of things that have been put on hold for the last six months, hasn't there? And uh, so today I want us to think about that and to to study God's word for just a moment together to help, I think, clarify our vision, help us to be able to see things as God sees. That's the premise of this entire lesson. So if if you uh, don't leave yet, please, because we want to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. But but, uh, it's interesting to me as I read the newspaper and certain journals to see how that the so-called facts that the scientific community set forth uh, years or even generations ago have either been uh, dialed back somewhat or sometimes just completely changed 180 degrees. That certainly was the true in the field of astronomy. For, for centuries, people believed that uh, the sun revolved around the earth. Uh, they, they even thought that they had proof because they said, if you don't believe that, just go out and you'll see the sun rising in the east and seeing it set in the west. You, clearly, it's, it's moving around the earth. And uh, so they thought that they had proof that that was happening. And also look, you know, how big the earth is as compared to that, to the sun that's out there on the horizon. Even scientists balked when Nicholas Copernicus suggested to them that your problem may be that you're looking at it from a different, the wrong perspective. Maybe you need to start looking at it differently. And of course that was corrected. The vision was corrected. And then the science also then was corrected as well. Eventually truth prevailed 
And people corrected their vision in order to line up with, with the facts. Even more amazing, there, there are some people today, and I guess this would be kind of in the field of psychology and maybe also spirituality, who actually believe the world revolves around them. This has been called the me generation. And so it's very easy for people to look at me and my needs and what it is that I want most and, and, and to think of other people as here kind of to meet my needs. And that's a very self-centered way to think and to live. And we, I think, all acknowledge that. They see themselves as, as kind of the center of the universe. And they bristle when anybody or even God's word says otherwise. So how, how do we gain the right perspective? That's the question I want us to ask and answer just briefly this morning. You, you'll know that, that you've got the right perspective. If I may summarize this entire lesson into one statement, you'll know that you have the right spiritual perspective when your life begins to revolve around the sun. And by that I mean S-O-N. And I think that when we understand that and when it comes to be assimilated into our hearts and lives to the degree that we realize that every thought we think Every word we speak, every action that we take, every decision that we make is done in light of what would Christ want me to do in this situation. Then I think that we can understand that no longer is the universe revolving around me, it is revolving around the Son of God. And that's what God would have each of us to be doing and, 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 and forming in our lives, that, that perspective that that really helps us to understand every day when we get out of bed that I'm living this day in order to honor and to glorify God. And if I'm not, then, then it's not worth getting up. Let's say you're sitting in your living room. This is not difficult for us to do now that the football season has kicked off at least in two places, according to what I saw on television yesterday. You're watching a football game on, on television. The referee throws a flag. Nothing wrong with that. They do that every other play. But the problem is they're throwing it against your team. And so you yell at the television set as if it will make a difference. And you say something along the lines of, Hey, Riff, are you blind? That wasn't holding or interference or targeting or whatever the infraction was supposed to be. And you know that you made the correct call because you're watching it in high definition on a 70-inch screen from your perspective. And you know exactly how that play went down, and you know that there was no infraction against your team, and then the camera has a replay from a different angle. And all of a sudden, when you're watching that play from a different angle, from a, from a different vantage point, then you discover that the referee, after all, did make the correct call. You were mistaken because you could not see the entire picture from your limited perspective. Now take that as a microcosm for life. Oftentimes that's what happens, isn't it? That happens sometimes even in our race relations. We've seen that play out over the last few weeks and months. That we're looking at things the wrong way. We're looking at other people the wrong way. And we're having the, the wrong set of values that will cause us to evaluate and then to live life from the wrong perspective. And so God is saying, in order to correct that, you're going to have to make sure that your perspective is right. That your vision is is correct, And that's why I think that this theme that we have been looking at at least for a little while this year is so very, very important. Because everything in, in some senses depends on how you look at it. And, and this morning I want to make sure that we're looking at it not my way or, or John's way or Ray. And we, we want to look at it God's way. 
We want, we want God to be the one who determines our vantage point about everything in life. So to get that right perspective, you have to view things from, from heaven's point of view. And if you look at, this, at the situation from God's perspective, then, then all of a sudden we'll find ourselves interpreting things in a completely different light. The Bible says this, and I think it's a very interesting passage in Psalm 33, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this, and, and you may be unfamiliar. There are some Psalms that I could start and you could finish, you're so familiar with. But probably not this one. Psalm 33, 13 and 14. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Now that probably isn't new to us in the sense of new information. We, we know that God is sitting on his throne. We know that he's looking out over us. We know that he is, he is watching us and he's either pleased or displeased with how we're living our lives. So, so we understand that theology. But, but I hope that we appreciate the essence of the passage. And that simply is that the Lord is looking from heaven. That he is looking from his divine vantage point. God has a perfect vision from his heavenly throne. He sees things the way they really are. And not with the various tinted glasses that we oftentimes use as we look at and evaluate not only people but circumstances. So the secret of a happy, fulfilling life is to be able to see through God's eyes. When a person receives an eye transplant, then that patient sees through someone else's eyes quite literally. But the Lord wants to give us eyes so that we can see as he does. And with that in mind, let me mention very quickly four things that will help us to have 2020 spiritual vision. First of all, we need to be able to see that God is in control. Is that a message our world needs to hear right now? Is that a message that the church needs to hear and to have reinforced in our hearts right now that God is in control? And I know I do. And, and, and I need to be reminded of that. N not once a week or once a month. I need to be reminded of that once a day. How about you? That God is still on his throne and that he is still in control. Think about how our perspective would change if we viewed every circumstance in life as God sees it. No doubt, I think we would come to be able to look beyond the earthly realm and we would see him in control. In fact, when you think about it, and how central our, and important and vital our faith is to living the Christian life successfully, that faith really is just the ability to look past the adverse circumstances that we are experiencing at the moment and to be able to see God's hand at work. I wonder if you've been able to do that for the last six months or so that we've been going through this pandemic. Can you see God's hand in this? And I know that it largely is dependent upon how we use the circumstances. We can use these circumstances to, to blame God, to get farther from him, and to, 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 to use a well-worn term, isolate ourselves even from God. Because we are blaming him for what's happening to us right now as we're going uh, through this crisis. On the other hand, we can see God's hand at work in a, a beneficent way, in a good way, in a constructive way. It's like a book I was reading yesterday that was talking about uh, a place that had uh, been practically destroyed by a tsunami. And the author pointed out that when tragedy strike, strikes on that broad of a scale, You'll either see the best in people or you'll see the worst in people, and that's true. 
that you can see both segments at, at, at play. And I'm saying that in terms of every day of our lives. You can see God at work, even in the most difficult circumstances, but you've got to change your perspective. You've got to make sure that your spiritual vision is, is acute and that you're exercising that vision that will allow you to be able to see things in a way where you can go to bed praising God rather than blaming Him. I hope that makes sense. So faith is the ability to look beyond the present circumstances, to see God's hand at work, and to be able to say with all confidence, as Paul did, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Jesus is, of course, our perfect example in everything. And the Bible tells us over and over again in the gospel accounts that he had that kind of perspective. He could see God's hand at work even in the most difficult of situations. He said this in John 5 verse 19, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Notice the basically the two steps that Jesus, the two-step process that Jesus is describing here. First of all, you've got to see what the Father is doing. You've got to see where he's working, how he's operating, and how he's running this universe that he created. But secondly, then once you have seen that, once you have identified the Father and what he's doing, then you've got to make sure that you're trying to do the same thing. Jesus said, that's the way I operated my life while he was walking on this planet. He looked to the Father, and then he tr- everything that the Father did, he tried to do and to replicate himself as he was walking here among humanity. Jesus always, that's my point, Jesus always saw his Father's hand at work. He knew his Father was in control, even when Jesus stood on trial before Pontius Pilate. That would have been hard, wouldn't it? To be able to stand on trial for your very life, and to know, hey, if this thing goes sideways... I'm not getting out of here alive. And that's exactly what happened as they nailed him to the old rugged cross. But even during the trial, Jesus could see his father's hand at work. That amazes me. That enthralls me. And that also blesses my life. To know that if Jesus could face death and yet still see God's hand in all of that, then surely I can too in the meager circumstances of my life. Here's why I know that. Because the Bible tells me so. In John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, Pilate said to him, that is Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Appreciate Jesus' answer. Verse 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. So from an earthly standpoint, it appeared as if Pilate had the upper hand. He certainly had the authority, or at least so he thought. Jesus, though, informed him that he had been granted that power from a higher authority. There is a Supreme Court of Appeal that has greater authority and greater power than you, Pontius. And he's the one that we all will answer to. He knew that Pilate couldn't do anything without the Father, the Heavenly Father, allowing that. Now here's a question, and I know that this has been asked by more people than just me because I've been in Bible classes where we've, we've discussed this. Why, if Jesus is omniscient and knows all things as, as, as a member of the Godhead, why would he choose Judas Iscariot? 
as one of his apostles. I mean, of, of all the people that were living in the day when Jesus was carrying on his ministry, and, and he was going to choose 12 guys that were going to, to follow in his footsteps and do his work as he was establishing his kingdom, why in the world would he choose a man like Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him? In fact, not only, not only chose him to be the apostle, he, was, he, he gave him the charge of, of, the, of the books, the financial records. He was the treasurer of the apostles. Apparently, John chapter 12, verse 6 says that Judas already had a bad habit of stealing some of the offerings from the money box. Only a fool or someone completely who trusted completely in God's sovereignty would put a traitor in that position. And I know which one of those two that Jesus was. He trusted in the sovereignty of God to even regulate the circumstance of Judas Iscariot and his activities. We don't see Jesus saying, Father, I can't believe you had me to choose Judas to be my apostle and my treasurer. What were you thinking? Now, Jesus always saw his father in control. And he was able to rest and find peace in that fact. I am recommending that kind of spiritual vision to you today. That we can find peace in knowing that our Father is in control. God is still on his throne. And I don't know how the presidential election is going to turn out in a couple of months. But you know what? God still reigns, doesn't he? He's still on his throne. He'll still be king of kings and lord of lords. And, and folks, that's what we've got to carry us through. Jesus understood that. And we also need to see the Father's hand at work in, in our lives, even when things are not going our way. And I know that's very easy for me to say, and it's hard for all of us to do, but it is a reality anyway. We need to learn to view life from that higher perspective. Joseph in the Old Testament viewed life from that higher perspective. I'm going to move on. Don't worry. But let me throw this one in because this is so powerful. If you haven't looked at the last third of the book of Genesis lately and studied that that biographical material that's given about the great man Joseph, you need to read it again. When he was sold into slavery by his brothers, he did not put on his rejection glasses or his glasses of self-pity. Later, Joseph would say to his brothers, years later, after he then finally revealed himself to them, time had passed to the degree that they didn't even recognize their own brother that they had sold into slavery. And, and, and yet Joseph, rather than being vindictive and seeking retaliation against the awful things his brothers had done to him, his response is like this. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 records it. Joseph told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Now you got to read the backstory to fully understand exactly all that Joseph was implying there. But my point is that Joseph saw God's hand at work. Even in his awful circumstances, even in the time that he spent in prison, Joseph could see God's hand at work. Folks, we've got to hang around. And by that I mean continue to maintain our fellowship with God, our faithfulness to God, our commitment to God, even in the tough times, in order to be able to come out on the other end of that tunnel, to be able to look back and say, God's hand was in it all. And to thank him and to praise him for that fact. You see, one of the problems is, besides our, our, our lack of faith, and I'll just call it what it is, the Lord doesn't always show us or tell us how he is operating behind the scenes. You see, we don't see everything. Behind our life, a weaver stands, 
and works his wondrous will. We leave it in his all-wise hands and trust his perfect skill. And when we can trust him for that, folks, a new day will dawn in our spiritual life. Secondly and quickly, we need to view life from a victor's perspective. When Arnold Palmer was playing as a high school student in the West Penn Junior Finals, again, bear in mind he was only about 17 years old, he missed a short putt, one that he would have made hundreds of times with his eyes closed in practice. But in that tournament, in the heat of competition, he missed a putt. Well, again, being a, a young man who was rather rash and had a short fuse, Arnold became so upset that he took his putter and threw it over the gallery into a stand of trees. Well, he quickly forgot about the missed putt when at the end of the round he was granted the trophy for winning the entire tournament. By the way, on his way home, his father was driving the car and said to Arnold, if you ever throw another club, you will never participate in another golf tournament. That kind of explains why Arnold turned out to be the man of integrity and character that he was later in life. But, but his father was clearly disappointed in the way his son had reacted when things didn't go his way. But my point here again is that if Arnold had known that missing that putt would not affect the outcome of the tournament, he would have reacted in a completely different fashion. And that's, that's pretty much where we are, isn't it? Sometimes we do things and we say things. And later we look back on them in regret and say, if only I had known how this would have turned out. I, I would have kept my temper. I would, have, I would not have spoken those words. I would not have acted in such a rash way. So I'm asking you this morning, have you thrown any putters lately? And not literally, of course. If so, it might be because you can't see yourself as ever winning. If you're a Christian, God has already determined that you're going to be victorious. Uh, Romans 8.28 says that. Revelation 17.14. Uh, those who make war with the Lamb, He will overcome them. And those that are with Him are chosen faithful. So, so we're on the winning side. And Paul reminds us in that wonderful, wonderful passage in Romans 8, verses 35 through 37, that there is nothing, no created thing that will ever separate us from the love of God. The Lord has already ensured the victory, and his children will be overwhelming, more than conquerors, is what he called us in that passage. So I want you to know this morning that you're on the winning side. I said this a couple of weeks ago, that every one of us is in a fight, but it's a fit, fixed fight. The, the decision has already been made by God. We're on the winning side. So what we need to do is to dedicate ourselves to make sure that we stay on the winning side. That we continue to follow God faithfully. That we never allow our faith to slip. But do we view life? Do we view life from that standpoint of victory? I talk to people all the time who are my brothers and sisters. And, and yet sometimes, you know, after a conversation with, with, with a few folks... You want to go fall on something sharp. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's some people that I talk to who have lived through the depression. There's some people that I talk to who probably caused it. And yet, if we're God's people and we have this unshakable faith in a sovereign God, it will change everything about the way we think and about the values that we hold and the priorities that we establish in life. And the way we treat other people. It's so very important. Let me illustrate it this way from history. At the height of World War II, the British Army was entrenched in North Africa. 
They were there to defend the Suez Canal from the onslaught of the Nazis. And, and the Nazis had a field marshal by the name of Erwin Rommel. Perhaps you've heard Rommel's name or remember reading about him in your history books. He was Germany's notorious desert fox is what they called him. And he started moving his troops across Libya. His forces rolled victoriously into Egypt. And then the British troops were, were, were demoralized because their, their armored tank a force had been decimated, and they thought, here comes the desert fox and his men. What are we going to do? We are basically defenseless. And they had retreated hundreds of miles. Their backs were right up against the Suez Canal, facing a seemingly invincible foe. It was in August of 1942 that Bernard Montgomery took field command to the battered British 8th Army there in Egypt. Montgomery was an was an optimistic man and a brilliant battle tactician. And one day he and a subordinate decided that they were going to kind of scout out Rommel's forces as they were getting closer. They climbed up on a sand dune and they looked down at Rommel's camp. Montgomery said, you know, to his subordinate, you know, he said, it's a sad thing that a professional soldier should reach the peak of his generalship and then should suffer tremendous defeat. Well, the subordinate was alarmed because usually Montgomery was optimistic and, and, and he was surprised that he should sound so hopeless. And he said, don't, don't be discouraged, sir. We may win. And the general replied, of course we'll win. I wasn't talking about my defeat. I was talking about Rommel's. And sure enough, Montgomery routed Rommel's forces and drove the Germans eastward clear back across North Africa. And history will tell you that the desert fox from Germany never won another battle in the African desert. By faith, you can foresee the outcome of your earthly struggles. God has already declared victory. And that's essentially my message to you this morning. I wanted you to know that. God has already declared victory in your life and mine. As long as we stay in his forever family, and continue to serve him as best we can. Now we just, we just need to change our perspective. And we need to begin to see life as, as a victor. N not because of our power. The power is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.10 says, thirdly, quickly, we need to look at, at all people as valuable. Years ago, the prime minister of France summoned a prominent doctor to perform surgery on him. He was a rather arrogant fellow. And the statesman told his doctor, he said, I expected to be treated like royalty and not like just some, some common person here in the hospital. And the surgeon's reply, I think, was perfect. He said, don't worry, sir. All my patients are prime ministers in my eyes. There's a man who had the right perspective talking to a man who didn't. You need to view everyone as a prime minister. But honestly, the truth is, most people don't see folks that way, do they? That's not their evaluation of people. That they look through prejudice glasses and, and they view some people as, as less valuable than others. They don't realize that everyone has equal value in God's eyes. Proverbs 22 verse 2 certainly affirms that. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Amen to that. And only by looking through God's eyes can we see everyone as being priceless. Jesus again had that capacity. He saw everyone through the eyes of love. I love the insight, the personal insight that Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 gives us into the heart and the life of Jesus. It says this, 
talking about Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You may remember that the backstory of that is that these people kept following him around. Whenever he would go to one side of the Sea of Galilee, they would come there. And, and then when he'd get on a boat to go to the other side, seeking some degree of respite, guess what? Who was waiting for them when he got there to disembark from the boat? And yet, rather than being perturbed by that, by thinking, don't I ever get some downtime, Jesus looked at them. And the Bible says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that a wonderful attitude? Wouldn't you like to be able to see humanity that way? To see everyone as a priceless soul that will live on somewhere in eternity. This is an illustration you probably heard, but there was a well-known speaker that began his seminar by holding up a $20 bill. I mean, you know, fresh off the printer. And, and he asked everyone at the conference, who would like this $20 bill? And of course, all the hands were raised. And he said, I'm going to give you this $20 bill to somebody. But first, I need to crumple it. And so sure enough, he wadded it up in his hand. And he said, now who wants this $20 bill? And hands, of course, were again quickly raised. The, the speaker then dropped the bill to the floor and ground it into the floor with his shoe till it was just, it was dirty. And, and he picked up the crumpled, now dirty bill, said, now who wants this $20 bill? And, and most of the hands still were raised. And he said, okay, you've learned a very valuable lesson here. He said, no matter what I did to the money, you still wanted it. Because nothing I did to it changed its inherent worth. Even though it was crumpled and wrinkled and dirty, it was still worth $20. And although someone, see the change in application, even though someone may be abused and misused, and although they may look wrinkled and dirty, like one old boy told his friend, you look like a million bucks, all green and wrinkled. Well, we, who needs friends like that? But sometimes we have days like that, don't we? Even though you've been abused, you are still worth more than all the gold in Fort Knox. You are worth more than this physical universe can be evaluated at. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, For what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Every one of us today in this audience and everyone outside this building has an eternal soul that is worth more than all the wealth of this world combined. And we need to always remember that. Everyone is precious in God's sight. And then finally, view every day with an eternal perspective. A doctor told his patient, I have some good news and some bad news. And the good news is you have only one week to live. And the patient responded, that's the good news? What's the bad news? He said, well, the bad news is I was supposed to have told you that last week. Now, serious for a moment. How would you feel if you were told you had only one week to live? That this would be, enjoy Labor Day, this will be the last one you ever see. For some of us, that'll be true. Some of us will never seat ourselves in this building again to celebrate another Labor's Day. Some of us, in all likelihood, the mathematical probabilities are, and I, it is a perfectly good way for a preacher to mess up a beautiful Sunday morning. <laughs> but see, God's Word says if we've got the right spiritual perspective, we've got to factor this in. We are not going to stay here forever. John's already led us in that wonderful old song, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Do we believe that? 
I hope we do, and if we don't, we need to recalibrate our vision so that we can, we can factor that into our view of life. If you found out you only had a week to live, how would you view life? You really need to view every day as if it were your last day, or was it Tim McGraw's song, Live Like You Were Dying? You know, that's, that's the way we ought to live. Because as the Bible affirms, you don't know when your life will end. What we do know, if the Lord delays his return, that death is an appointment every one of us will keep. It is appointed unto all men, no exceptions, once to die and after that the judgment. Hebrews 9.27, the Bible also says that the length of our earthly life is merely a moment when it's compared to eternity. The way James said that was, life is but a vapor, it's here for a little while, then it vanishes away. James chapter 4 and verse 14. Visit the cemetery sometime if you haven't done so recently and read the dates that are engraved on the headstones. The deceased's days on earth, the person who is lying there in that grave, their days on earth were numbered, and obviously they're now over. That's why they're in the grave. And now the only question that remains is, what did that person live for? How did he or she spend their days? Were they living for God? Were they living for self? You mark it down. And you knew we would have to come to the application, and here it is. One day, our names will be engraved on a headstone. How are we spending our allotted days on planet Earth? We need to keep an eternal perspective every day, mindful that we are quickly, and I mean quickly, passing through this world. Life on Earth is simply a dress rehearsal for eternity. There is an eternal world that awaits us after this one, and you can deny that until the Lord comes back, but it is a spiritual reality nonetheless. And we need to make every day count because our time on earth is rapidly running out. David prayed in Psalm 90 and verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days means that we're continually aware that life could end at any moment and and we want each day that we have left to have an eternal purpose. Let me illustrate that, then we're through. A man started thinking about how much time he had left to live and how that he could measure that to, to get some tangible grip on how much time he had left. Well, he calculated at the time That on average, if you average between men and women in their lifespans, we live about 75 years, which would include, as he continued to do the math, about 3,900 Saturdays. He began thinking, okay, I'm already 55 years old, and so I've already lived through about 2,900 Saturdays, and if I live to be 20 more, if I live 20 more years, then I have about 1,000 Saturdays left. So he continued thinking about how that he could get a better grip on, on, on the reality of our finite stay here on this earth. And he went to a, store, a toy store and he bought a thousand marbles and he put those marbles into a clear container. Every Saturday he would take one of those marbles out of that container and he would throw it away. And by watching the marbles decrease in that jar, he was reminded that time was running out and that he really needed to focus on the important things of life and to make sure, above all, that his soul was in the right place in terms of his standing before God. Measuring how much time he had left helped him to keep an eternal perspective. And when he turned 75, he took that last marble out of the container and he threw it away, only after looking at it for a while, and he said, I figure if I make it until next Saturday, that means that God has just given me some extra time on earth. That man viewed life in light of eternity, didn't he? And I would, I would commend that perspective. You and I can make every day count for eternity by living to please the Lord in everything that we do. Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery 
consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And that's what I commend to you today. I wonder if you're truly looking at the world and the prospect of eternity with, with enlightened eyes, as Paul referred to them in the book of Ephesians. Or are you still groping in the darkness of sin? If you are still in sin and in, in spiritual darkness, the good news is there's a remedy. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, Awake you who sleep and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. If you need spiritual light in your life right now so that you can see better and to see as God sees, we hope that you will allow your faith to move you to sincere repentance in your life. Determine that you're going to walk in the Lord's highway and not the way the world would have you to walk. Confess Jesus as God's Son and allow us to baptize you into Christ this morning so that you can begin to see life the way God would have you to see it and that you can wind up in the eternal destiny where God wants you to be so that someday you'll hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we call you to while we stand and while we sing.